I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scriptures to Genesis chapters 29 and 30. Genesis 29 and 30 this morning. Next Sunday morning, I will begin our summer series on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. And I would ask you, I would ask us as a church family to bathe this summer series in prayer. As we discuss the spiritual warfare that is unseen, the wrestle that we have against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, what we experience individually and corporately in battle against the wicked one, we need to bathe our summer in prayer as we hear the teaching from God's word on Sunday mornings and then spend our midweek Wednesday evenings in homes uh, reviewing and rehearsing that, that teaching. I hope that you'll be a part of that, that program. But for this morning, Genesis 29 and 30. Now, allow me to introduce our text this morning by reminding you that although Jacob grew up in a God-fearing home, Jacob's gr- grandfather was Abraham, Jacob's father was Isaac, there, there's yet no indication that Jacob himself had a personal relationship with God like his father or grandfather did. In fact, Before Jacob's encounter with God in Genesis 28, Jacob could only refer to his father's God as your God. In fact, just quickly now, turn back to Genesis 27. It's it's not far away. Genesis 27, verse number 20. Isaac says to his son, Jacob, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? That is the, the game, the meat that he had gone hunting for to provide for his father Isaac. And he, Jacob, said, because the Lord, your God, brought it to me. But after Jacob left home in Genesis 28, Jacob, I'm sorry, God appeared to Jacob in a dream and promised Jacob his presence and his provision and his protection. And that event in Genesis 28 marked an important change in Jacob's life. He named the place Bethel or Bethel, meaning the house of God in chapter 28, verse 19, for he recognized the presence of God in that place. And now for the first time in his life, Jacob is committing himself to following after God and making the Lord His God, chapter 28, verse 21, look there, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. You understand the difference there from chapter 27 here now to the end of chapter 28. The problem is this, and I printed it for you there at the top of your notes. The problem is that even though Jacob was now committed to the God of heaven and earth, the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, Life was still a struggle. Contrary to the false gospel message of health and wealth and prosperity that is often preached around the world, one's commitment to follow after God doesn't erase the natural consequences of our sin. Nor does it promise an easy life going forward. God promises his presence in our lives going forward, but it doesn't necessarily promise an easy life. And so now from Genesis 29 and 30, I prepared a message titled, Jacob's Wives and His Wages, the next chapter in the biography of the patriarch Jacob. Let me begin with a word of prayer. God in heaven, we thank you for the deep, deep love of Jesus. It's vast and it's great and it reaches 
even us. I thank you for the love of Jesus that was manifested on the cross as he shed his blood and he died for us, for the forgiveness of our sin. He rose from the grave so that we might have everlasting life. Lord, we're so grateful for that. Lord, now as we come to the Holy Scripture and we continue to study the life of Jacob, Lord, although he had named you as his God, life was still rough and difficult. Lord, the natural consequences of sin remained and and Lord, his path was hard, but you were always with him. I pray that you'd encourage us from this Old Testament narrative as we make application to our lives in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we pick up and resume our reading of the Genesis account in chapter 29, verse number one. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Now, we know from chapter 27, verse 43, that Jacob's journey in leaving home was to escape the wrath of his brother Esau, who threatened to kill him. We also know from chapter 28, verse two, that Jacob's journey away from home, leaving home, was to find a wife from among his mother's family rather than from among the Canaanites. So Jacob now has traveled from Beersheba northeast along the Fertile Crescent for more than 450 miles into Mesopotamia in the city of Haran. And after days and weeks of walking, I can only imagine that Jacob's steps became a bit lighter now as he was approaching his destination. Initially, when he left home, his thoughts were heavy and his heart was heavy with the burden of all the conflict that had taken place in his family's life among Isaac and Rebekah and and his brother Esau. But now as he looked forward to what God had in store for him, he's nearing his destination. He had heard so much from his grandpa Abraham. He had heard so much from his mother Rebekah about their previous homeland and now at long last he's arriving in that place I've outlined the narrative this way this way number one Jacob's journey to find a wife Jacob's journey to find a a wife again chapter 29 verse 1 so Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east and he looked and saw a well in the field and behold there were three flocks of sheep lying by it for out of that well they watered the flocks A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. Letter A, his arrival at the well. Jacob's arrival at the well. Now Jacob must have been excited upon his arrival at the well. Why so? Well, Wells. <laughs> wells were important in that region of the country for wells were the source of water for both people and animals. Without wells, everyone would die of dehydration, of course. Jacob was also excited, I imagine, because wells were an important part of the ancient, ancient Middle East um, conversation. It, they were the original water cooler, if you will, where people would gather together and talk and catch up on the news of the day and exchange agreements and such. And, and so this was a great place for, for Jacob to arrive. And then I think also Jacob would have been excited upon his arrival at the well because he grew up hearing the story of how his own mother and father met, that is Isaac and Rebekah. It was all because of a well. You remember in Genesis 24 that Abraham sent his servant out to to look for a wife for Isaac. And Abraham's servant came to a well in this very same region of the world, perhaps in the very same 
place, perhaps even the very same well, to look for a wife for Isaac. And there Abraham's servant met Rebekah, Jacob's mother, and brought her back to marry Isaac, Jacob's father. Could it be, could it be that Jacob as well would find a wife at the well as well? And sometimes I humor myself with this, right? Could it be that Jacob would find a, a, you see, before there was eHarmony.com or before there was Match.com or it's just lunch.com or all the rest. There was see you at the well speed dating.com. And, and this is it. And so Jacob is arriving at this well. He's got the, the, this story from his, his folks in his mind. And he comes to this well. And, um, but, but he can't remove the stone from the well. It's over the mouth of the well until all the flocks have gathered. And why was that? It was probably to protect the well from pollutants, dust and dirt and critters or whatever that might get into the well there and probably also to ensure the fair distribution of the water to all the various shepherds with their flocks and their herds and such. However, it worked out well at this well to have everyone gather at the same time if you were needing a wife because all of your options would maybe perhaps be there at the same time and and you could find a wife. Look at verse number four. And Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? They said, we're from Haran. Then he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. So he said to them, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, here you go. (laughs) Look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Folks, this is, um, this is either phenomenal coincidence or tremendous providence, right? And, and I think we understand it's the latter, but imagine Jacob's excitement at the well. He asks them where they're from and if they know Laban, yes and yes and yes. And then the ultimate providence is that Laban's daughter, Rachel, was coming to the well at that very moment. And, and so what does Jacob do? He asks the guys the others, to hurry up, water your animals, and then be moving on because I have, I have some introductions to make is what he's saying. Look at verse number seven. Then he said, look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together then and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we will water the sheep. And so what the narrative has told us in verse number three is now confirmed for us in verse number eight, namely the well couldn't be used by anybody at any time for their own convenience. Everyone had to wait until everyone had arrived and probably there were fees to be paid to the, the well's owner for, for whatever water was drawn there. Let's keep reading. Verse number nine. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was, she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, embraced him, kissed him, brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are, bone of my, you are of my bone and, and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. 
All right, beyond Jacob's arrival at the well, how about this? His emotion at the well. And, and if Jacob was subconscious about the others being around, it, he didn't let it stop him, but rather he took over the situation. And as Laban's daughter Rachel came with her sheep, Laban took matters into his own hands. He removed the rock from the well. He watered the flock of his uncle Laban. And, and then Jacob explained to Rachel who he was, and he gave her a hug and kiss. This is the first occasion in all of human history of kissing cousins, you see. And Jacob kisses, it's it's like good to meet you, and he kisses her there in this place. And what took place then here and now uh, between um, Jacob and Rachel is so reminiscent of what took place between Abraham's servant and Rebekah many years earlier, just in reverse. Jacob's mother had done for Abraham's servant and his camels. Remember, Rebekah watered them. And now Jacob did for Rachel and for her sheep. He, he watered them. And it's evidently love at first sight. And there's some affection shown, lots of emotion. What, what an amazing experience. Some people wonder, how you know if you ought to marry another? Right? And sometimes the answer is given when you know, you know, right? You, you just know, and this is love at first sight. It's like, glad to meet you. Would you like to get married? That's, I mean, that's, that's what's happening here. And we've now just barely been introduced to Uncle Laban here in verses 13 and 14. He was as excited to see Jacob as Jacob was to see Rachel in verse 13. Even Laban is hugging and kissing Jacob fussing all over him, calling him bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Really? I think Laban here is being a little overdramatic, and, um, but because of what we know about Laban uh, previously and yet to come, um, we can read between the lines here. If you'll remember previously, when Abraham's servant came to take Rebekah for Isaac. All Laban was interested in were the costly gifts that Abraham's servant had brought. And I'm sure now Laban is immediately thinking of the wealth that Jacob must have because after all, Jacob is Abraham's grandson. And of course, going forward, we know that Laban extracted years and years of labor from Jacob. And and so um, because I don't trust Laban, I know too much about Laban here at this point, I suspect that that this month of hospitality that's mentioned there in verse number 14 was a time in which Laban was waiting for Jacob to come forward with all of the gifts and the gold and the silver and the payment just as Abraham's, de- Abraham's servant did when he came to fetch Rebekah. And so as I'm thinking about this, um, I was mindful that if we, were to have, if we were to have Charles Dickens describe Uncle Laban he would probably use the very same language that he used when describing Ebenezer Scrooge. And, uh, and I guess uh, here's what I have here. Um, he says, a, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scarping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, secret and self-contained as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gates. And this is who we now have as, as Laban. But to give you the, 
the, the, the second uh, point there, Jacob is going to agree to marry a wife. He's going to agree to marry Laban's daughters here, or daughter, I guess, initially. But this is who we're dealing with, Jacob's agreement to, to marry a wife. And, uh, but it's, it's countered, I think, by Jacob's fervent love, his fervent love. And, and, and let's look at verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Oh, how generous, Uncle Laban. Um, Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel, verse 17. Leah's eyes were delicate. There was some physical weakness there. But Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you, Laban, seven years for Rachel, your your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. So basically saying, I could do worse, right? So, uh, okay, stay with me. Verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. What a, a fervent love. And it's, it's really quite the romantic story, a chivalrous story for how Jacob loved Rachel. Serving seven years and yet it only feeling like a few days. I thought about this. A cynic, might, a cynic might say that when you get married, you have to serve for the rest of your life, right? So what, what are seven years? The, the difference here is that uh, Jacob wasn't serving Rachel. He was serving Laban for seven years. But in this case, because of his fervent love, it was just but a few days. We have a number of Fourth Baptist Church members who, are, who have or are getting married this summer. And that's an exciting thing for any young couple, and we rejoice and congratulate with them. But can you imagine this arrangement, this seven-year courtship or this seven-year betrothal or engagement period, slaving away for Uncle Laban just out of love for Rachel? Let's keep reading. Verse 21 Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are full, fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her and Laban gave his maid Zilpha to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? You did a bait and switch here. Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me with, with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel, his wife also. And Laban, Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. I don't know how to title a, a passage like this other than letter B, his frightful lesson. <laughs> Yikes. Jacob was tricked. Jacob was scammed. Uncle Laban lied and cheated Jacob from having Rachel and then used a pathetic excuse about some cultural custom of, of his country. Of course, we, we marvel 
at how Jacob could not have realized that he had married the wrong girl. Was that because of the veil? Was that because Jacob was so drunk that, that he di- didn't even know who was with him? He couldn't see straight in either case, but whatever the case, Jacob learned that he wasn't the only cunning man in the world. And Jacob got a taste of his own medicine. And whereas Jacob had pulled a couple quick tricks on his brother and on his father previously, now it was his turn to be on the receiving end of this horrific deceit. I spent some time musing on this and thinking of this, and, and on the back of your notes, I've suggested four parallels that, that might, that might um, help us understand the, the devastation of this. But um, as Jacob, first, as Jacob had deceived Isaac by taking advantage of his inability to see due to poor eyesight, so Laban took advantage of Jacob in his inability to see or know who he had married. Another one, earlier Jacob had deceptively pretended to be the older brother, and remember that, to pretend to be Esau, and he put uh, skins on his arms and and, and such, and now Laban tricked him by replacing the younger with the older. Laban and Leah deceived Jacob, as Jacob had deceived Isaac. There's another parallel Jacob was behaving like his parents who each favored one son above the other. Of course, Jacob loved, I, or, I'm sorry, Isaac loved Jacob. Rebekah loved Esau, you remember, by favoring one of his wives above the other now as Jacob is doing. In both cases, serious family problems followed. Then Esau was forced to live with the results of Jacob's decision or deception But now Jacob was forced to live with the results of Laban's deception. What a bitter pill. What a bitter life experience. Kicked in the teeth, stabbed in the back, betrayed, deceived. In verses 27 and 28 there, as we read it, you see a reference to her fulfilling her week. It refers to the the, the wedding of a, or or a bridal week at the end of which um, he was given Rachel. So really Jacob here gained two brides in one week. Leah, a week later, Rachel. Of course, the chicanery of Laban bound Jacob to another seven years. So he worked seven years, got Leah. A week later, got, I'm I'm confusing the names, Rachel, right, in my mind, and then worked a following another seven years there, which, which brings us now to his family life. Let her see, his family life. Now that Jacob is married to Rachel, the one he loved, he wasted no more time on Leah. And just as his mother and father, Rebekah and Isaac, had played favorites with their two sons, Jacob and Esau, so Jacob is going to play favorites with his two wives, Rachel and Leah. And, and perhaps who could blame him, I suppose, but what a complicated mess. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, the Lord has surely looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a a son, and 
and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and, and said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Let me continue to read the first few verses of chapter 30. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, here is my maid Bilhah, go into her and she will bear a child on my knees and that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, his wife, and Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister and indeed I have prevailed. So she called the name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpha, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid Zilpha bore Jacob a son. Folks, Jacob's family life is a mess. This is a disaster. It's dysfunctional. It's broken. It's sinful through and through. And when Rachel at long last did conceive a son herself, all the way in verse 22, if you look ahead there, whom she called Joseph, does it surprise us that Jacob played favorites with him? I'm sure you're familiar with Joseph. The coat of many colors and the jealousy of the other brothers and Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And if we were to read all of Genesis 30, it gives us the the birth of the 12 sons of Jacob. We know them as the 12 tribes of Israel. But this family was a disaster. And the competition between Rachel and Leah is embarrassing and it's shameful and each wanted to bear sons for Jacob and and they gave Jacob their respective maids and, and everyone was lobbying for attention and affection and favoritism and the family life was it was not good. And, uh, and so we're, we're left with this and it's embarrassing, it's shameful, it's cringy. What I'd like to do here in the last few moments that remain is make application of this Old Testament Bible narrative in, in some way to ourselves. What principles can we take from this for ourselves? And so there in the back of your notes, I I would offer you two. First, first principle of of application is the consequence of sin is devastating. The consequence of sin is devastating. If there is anything for us to learn from the biographies of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, the patriarchs of the Hebrew people, the lesson is this, that sin is, is devastating. And it's not just devastating to us personally as the individual offender, but to everyone who is around us, our spouse, our children, perhaps in our case, our church family, those whom we love, and emotionally and relationally and logistically, sin tears families apart and forces secondary implications and complications that impact so many others and extend for years into the future. Dear brother or sister, do not ever think that your sin won't affect or infect others 
around you and for years into the future. There is plenty of blame to go around. Of course, we have Isaac and Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, Laban, and Aaliyah, and Rachel, and every character in all of these biblical accounts has behaved so selfishly and so sinfully, and now they are all suffering. This is a convoluted situation at best. It's abnormal at best. You say, well, Pastor Matt, um, that's actually my story. You say, Pastor, if you knew about all of the skeletons in my closet, if you knew about all the regrets in my past, if you knew about my extended family, if you knew about the consequences, the devastating consequences of sin in our family, you would know that my story is no different. What do I do? You say, Pastor, what do I do? I'm estranged from my family. I'm living in a far country. My current relationships are difficult. My circumstances are less than ideal. The consequence of sin is devastating. You say, that is my life story. What hope is there? What encouragement is there? What future is there for you? I offer you a second principle. While the consequence of sin is devastating, the grace of God is comforting. The grace of God is comforting. And and don't put your things away just yet. You have to follow this with me. One could argue that Jacob's family life, his situation is a kind of poetic justice. That Jacob the deceiver was getting a taste of his own medicine, like some Hindu notion of karma, right? What goes around will come around. But let me assure you that that is not the point of this Old Testament narrative or all of God's revelation to us, but rather on the contrary. God's grace is so threaded through all of these circumstances. God's grace overrules in all of these circumstances. God did not ordain these circumstances to punish Jacob, but in his grace to preserve and provide for Jacob. You say, how so? Let's think about this first in preservation. God's grace in preserving Jacob. The delay of 14 years of serving up Uncle Laban kept Jacob away from the wrath of his brother Esau who had vowed to kill him. And although Jacob may have resented the obligation to Uncle Laban, what was God doing? By having Jacob in that place at that time, God was preserving Jacob in that hardship. Preservation. How about provision? The gift of Leah was the provision of God. Now, you got to follow me on this. We would not initially think of Leah as part of God's provision. However, in the all-wise, sovereign, gracious plan of God, it was Leah, not Rachel, who became the mother of Judah. Judah, the one through whom, the line through whom would come the Messiah. It was also Leah, not Rachel, who would become the mother of Leah. I'm sorry, Levi. Leah became the mother of Levi, the one through whom the priestly line would come. If it were not for Leah, There would be no Judah, there would be no Levi. Alas, when Rachel died at an early age, she was buried on on their way to Bethlehem. When Leah died, she was buried with Jacob in the cave at Machpelah, the burial place of the patriarchs and their wives, Abraham and Sarah, 
Isaac and Rebekah, and then Jacob and Leah, not Rachel. So folks, we make a mess of things in our lives. And we think that we can manage and manipulate circumstances for our gain, for our benefit, and then we suffer the consequences. And they're grave and they're hard. And we say, yeah, it's, it's complicated, right? It's complicated. But let me encourage you that because of God's grace, he can take your mess and he can make something beautiful. He can take our mess and he can accomplish his will nonetheless. It doesn't mean that there aren't tears. It doesn't mean that there aren't scars and hurt and wounds because of sin. But it means that God is gracious and his grace is greater than all of our sin. I don't know what circumstance is playing through your mind this morning. It's perhaps a private matter. It's something you wouldn't share publicly. It's something we may never know. And you're discouraged because of it. Know that God's grace overrules our sin. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for redeeming broken men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thank you, Lord, for using broken women like Rebecca and Leah and Rachel. Lord, thank you for your grace toward us all. Lord, in many cases, we've made messes of our lives. and We've sinned and the consequences, the natural consequences are devastating to us. But God, may we rejoice in your amazing grace. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.